0: Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the New Testament letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews today, chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. And as you're turning there, you may be asking yourself the question, What happened to Ecclesiastes? Uh, We'll get back to Ecclesiastes soon. Uh, God in his providence had different plans for us. Uh, You may be aware, if you were with us last week, Uh, that Stephen Berry, one of our elders, preached the one-off from Exodus. That's because uh, late on Saturday, Andrew Davis, who was supposed to be preaching the first return uh, sermon in Ecclesiastes last week, was taken ill. Uh, And so uh, we decided that uh, what we would do is hold on uh, to that next sermon in Ecclesiastes that Andrew had already written and prepared. uh, And he's going to preach that next week, Lord willing, and today, uh, that leaves me filling in with just whatever I want to preach, uh, which is great, because uh, I love this passage, and I hope you love it too. Uh, but much more than that, I hope you know and love our great high priest, who we'll read about together today. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, that's on page 1003 in uh, the ESVs on the cart. you picked one up. Uh, if you didn't pick one up, it's still on page 1003. <clears throat> so... Uh, Hebrews chapter 4 today, uh, beginning in verse 14, but before we read this uh, this short passage together, please join me again in prayer as we seek God's blessing. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and God, we do thank you for this, your word. We thank you much more that it teaches us about Christ, our Savior. We thank you that he is the one who is all-sufficient, who has made a perfect sacrifice, who uh, makes perfect for all time those who are being sanctified through him. Gracious Father, give us faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us your spirit that we would worship you. Give us uh, his mercy that we should come before you. Make us your people. Keep us. Draw us to yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You're now God's word as we find it in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. and find grace to help in time of need. As far as the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he bless our reading and our study of it together today. I was, uh, I was reflecting uh, on my way back to New England from Pennsylvania this week that I've been a resident of Massachusetts now for nearly 13 years Uh, Nearly 13 years, and I think by now I have finally gotten a handle on how to tell people around here what I do for a living. Uh, That is because there's a different vocabulary for ministry in New England than maybe in other parts of the country where different terminology is accepted and understood in a different way. So when I'm talking to folks in some of our small Christian circles, I use my uh, my preferred self-identification. I tell people that I'm a pastor. It's the language that I use. And when I'm filling out a government form, I'm normally a member of the clergy. Uh, but when I'm talking to basically anybody else outside of the church or the government, I have found that what I need to tell them is that I'm a minister. Now, the word minister captures most clearly something that is recognizable, something familiar to most non-churchgoers in New England. So that's the term that I've learned to use. But I've also learned that whenever I use that term, almost invariably, I know what comes next. Next, there is a pause. Next, there is an eyebrow. And next, there is the question, you mean like a priest? Mm, Yeah, sure. Uh, Okay, like a priest, something like that. And and it works uh, for most people. But of course, I'm not a priest. Uh, And in most Protestant churches, we don't have priests, and that is an intentional decision. There's a difference between those two roles, a pastor and a priest. A pastor uh, is a guide. A pastor is a shepherd. A pastor is somebody who attends to the spiritual needs of others. and, And as a pastor, I'm known mostly by my teaching, by my counseling ministry, because a pastor is a guide. But a priest, on the other hand, is a go between Right? A, a priest is a mediator. A priest stands between God and man as a sort of halfway point, a, a, a sort of channel between those two. A priest is someone who performs uh, religious rituals, sacrifices, that the worshipers can't or, or don't pr- uh, perform for themselves. and they, uh, A priest performs these rituals as a way to bring people to God and to dispense God's grace to the people. Liam Gallagher uh, suggests that the very concept of a priest presupposes both the idea of a gap and also a bridge. There is a gap. There is this uncrossable distance between God and man because of our sin. But in a priest we find a connection point, a channel. Uh, someone through the role or, or the person of a priest who can connect sinful humans with a sinless God, so a priest is a mediator. Somebody who stands in the place of humanity and makes intercession before the Lord. Somebody who stands in the place of God and dispenses grace to humanity. And in the New Testament, you're aware that God's people generally uh, are known as priests. We are a royal priesthood, the New Testament tells us. and We have an intercessory role. We pray for people who don't yet Know the Lord, we have a dispensing role, we share the gift of the gospel as we've received it from Christ. We're priests, all of us, in a general sense, but no minister, no pastor, no father, no rector, no curate, none of the terms you can think of, none of those is a priest in the real technical sense, even if that's what we call some of them. That is because... Uh, No sinful human minister can connect other sinful humans with a sinless God by their own influence. No sinful human minister can dole out God's graces like a doctor writing prescriptions. It's all for the basic reason that every sinful minister needs a mediator himself that he cannot fill that role. But there is a mediator for us. And we as God's people have a perfect high priest. We have a great high priest, a mediator, a go-between, between us and God, one who is enthroned in the heavens, Jesus Christ, the only mediator of God's elect. And today we're going to consider that great high priest. He himself is the only one who is able to make his people faithful. Faithful. And I want us to look at, at who Jesus, our great high priest, is for his people. Now, specifically, I want you to see that our great high priest is glorious. And I want you to see that our great high priest is sympathetic. Those are our two points today. Christ's priestly glory and Christ's priestly sympathy. And we begin in verse 14 with Christ's priestly glory. Now, as the first word indicates in our text, we are jumping into this uh, passage mid thought, and that's okay. Uh, Even without rehearsing the first four chapters of Hebrews, uh, we can see pretty clearly from what we have before us that Christ is being presented to us as the answer we need to the problem that we have. This is a resolution passage it is good news for us to have this great high priest because it seems like this great high priest is just what we need. That's because the primary problem that the, the letter of Hebrews is addressing is the temptation to turn away from trusting in Christ and following in Christ and instead substitute faith in him for just about anything else that seems more alluring at the moment. If we were to summarize the book of Hebrews, we would say the message is, in a nutshell, don't lose faith. Don't turn back. Don't neglect this great salvation. Let us run with endurance the race marked out for us. Let us keep. Let us hold fast. Let us press on. That's the message. And that's the message because, specifically, this letter was written to mostly first-century Jewish converts who Uh, who uh, were tempted to give up trust in Christ in favor of returning to their Jewish roots. And Maybe you can understand just how tempting that temptation might have been. At this time, uh, when the letter was written, the temple of Herod was still standing. There it was in all of its magnificence in Jerusalem with its gold and marble walls. There it was populated by priests in their impressive clothing. There it was with the smoke of of incense and offering rising with a daily routine of, of daily prayer, morning and evening, another sacrifice, more prayer, more gathering, more commotion, more crowds, more spectacle. That's what you would find in the worship of the Jews in the first century. Not that those things were wrong, and in fact the letter of Hebrews will go on to tell us not that that they were wrong, just that they were temporary, but you understand that all of these outward things had a certain draw for the people. It had a certain uh, attraction for those who, who had had their entire lives ordered around external things that seemed impressive, but Christian worship, on the other hand, was pretty unimpressive in the first century. There was no temple, there were no priests. There was no bronze altar and fire and smoke. There, there were no bells tinkling. There were just God's people gathered together to worship the Lord and hear his word. Acts chapter 2 tells us that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That was Christian worship. Prayer and praise, fellowship and thanksgiving and edification. It was just that simple. It was, in a sense, just that unimpressive. And if your entire life had been built around these forms of external ritual and sacrifice, the the faith of Christian worship probably seemed anticlimactic. And there were these people among the church, these Jewish converts, these professors of faith who had been tempted to turn back to what was familiar, back to these external forms and these religious experiences. You, know, you and I face the same temptation. I imagine that you get some of the same catalogs that I get uh, that come in my mailbox from time to time, whether I've signed up for them or not. They might have heard that I'm a member of the clergy, so I get them. Uh, and, and there they are, these, these Christian catalogs, and they have a small sampling of commentaries, they have some study Bibles, they have an enormous selection of daily devotionals for every conceivable demographic in the church. And then somewhere in the middle of that catalog is the page of paraphernalia. And so you can go and you can buy your silken prayer shawls. And you can buy your uh, your incense and your anointing oil, and you can buy your your uh, candle holders made from an olive tree from Israel, and you can buy your authentic ram's horn shofars, and that page of paraphernalia seems to advertise to us that what our worship needs, what our faith needs, is a little something extra. And if we can get that something extra, we can incorporate it into our faith, and we'll feel just a little bit closer to God and to his mercy, and so we're drawn to these things, or at least we're tempted by them. Well, it was the temptation that these first Jewish Christians faced. Maybe we're missing out because we no longer have a temple or priests or sacrifices. Maybe we should turn back. Maybe we should let go of this confession. That's why Hebrews spend so much time uh, declaring and, and describing to us the superiority of Jesus to all this outward stuff. Jesus, to to rehearse the first four chapters, Jesus uh, is much greater. He's a son far more majestic than the angels. Jesus is a prophet who's far more faithful even than Moses. Jesus is a priest who who is far greater even than Aaron. That's the message we find in the opening section of, of Hebrews. And because Jesus is so much greater than the things that he replaces... We don't need to be worried that we're missing out if it's just Jesus who brings us to God. And so verse 14 speaks of the glory of our high priest. It says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. There's a parallel here. The parallel has to do with what happened in the temple on the day of atonement. When the high priest over the Jewish people would enter just Once a year he would pass through that enormous curtain into the most holy place and he would go with the blood of a sacrifice and he would go and sprinkle the mercy seed and you can look and you can can read all the details in Leviticus chapter 16 but the point of all of this is the fact that it proclaims to us that there is access available to God through a sacrifice. And they pass through to where God is, but as Hebrews chapter 10 will tell us, those sacrifices were repeated again and again and again and again. Every morning, every evening, every day of atonement once a year, it happened all over again, and it was repeated because they had to be repeated. They were repeated because not all the blood of bulls and goats on Jewish altars slain could take away the sins of humanity. That day of atonement was a rehearsal. It was rehearsed annually as a declaration that the real bridge between God and man was not yet done being constructed. But Hebrews 10.12 says that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's what it means when it says that Jesus, the Son of God, has passed through the heavens. It means that he's gone into the presence of the Lord, its language of exaltation. Christ, our great high priest, has entered into the eternal presence of God, not into a temple made with hands, but into the the temple made by God himself, a heavenly dwelling where Christ sits, where he reigns, where he waits for the consummation of all things, and for all of his enemies to be made a footstool. You see, Aaron and and his sons entered into the presence of God for a few brief moments, but our high priest dwells in the heavenly presence of God forever, and what is he doing there? He's pleading for his people. There, his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There, he represents us. There, he pleads for us with the Father. There, he speaks a word of intercession for those who trust in him. So Hebrews says, we have a great high priest. Are you tempted to turn away, to go back to things that seem outwardly impressive? Don't don't wonder if you're missing out. We have a great high priest, one who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And you notice that connection between his earthly name and his eternal title. Because the man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the divine son of God. The the carpenter's boy is God's son, the only begotten of the Father. And there is no greater priest than him because there is no other priest who can dwell in heaven as God and there is no other priest who can plead our case as man. In him, in his work and in his person, the gap between the divine and the human has been bridged. And so Augustine puts it this way. He says, God became a man for this purpose. Since you, a human being, could not reach God, but you can reach other humans, you might now reach God through a man. Our great high priest is exalted. Our human high priest is divine. He's ascended and seated at the right hand of God the Father forever. Forever. And because this is true, it means we must never turn back. Because this is true, it means that we must keep the faith. Since we have such a great high priest, let us hold fast our confession. The temptation facing the Jewish Christians in the first century really is just uh, a symptom of the same temptation we all face in many ways at many times, and not just when we open those catalogs. We're constantly tempted by the lure of our flesh, by the press of the world, to turn away from what God has said and to go after the things that we can see. We're always trending in the direction of sight over faith, and God's word is always calling us to come back to his truth and what he has declared. He always calls us to come back to him more than our finite senses and our human wisdom. And that means that the message to the Hebrews is the same as the message to you. There is a glorious high priest in heaven, and you have never seen him, but you can trust him. You can put your faith in him and know that you will not be disappointed, so you can hold fast your confession. What does it look like to hold fast your confession? Well, it looks like inward faith one, Uh, an internal thing that happens, a a Christian virtue, an evangelical grace uh, that happens inside. And because it happens inside, it's sometimes hard to know whether it's there or what it's doing or what it looks like. It's hard to describe to other people because you can't see it even to know that it's working. And so what does it look like, this faith that is inside and internal and sometimes unseen? Well, sometimes you know that it's working because it keeps you grounded, It simply makes you realize that you have no hope anywhere in the world other than what God has revealed and the salvation he's given in Christ. So sometimes the way that you know that faith is at work is that you stop looking for something better. It can be as simple as that. We want huge explanations, we want uh, wonderful experiences, and we want someone to show up and give us a five-point list of how we can know our faith is at work. Very often, faith shows up when you say, I've got nowhere else to turn. Do you remember those disciples when Jesus was teaching hard teachings? In the Gospel of John, chapter 6, and he's talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and, and many are turning away because of the things that he's saying are so difficult And the disciples come, and Jesus says to them, are you going to turn away too? And they say, where else shall we go? You have the words of life. It's faith. It draws you close to Christ and makes you realize there's nothing else. There isn't anything better. There's nowhere else to go, and faith is at work. That's what holding fast to your confession looks like. Of course, this, Of course, if, if faith is anything to us inwardly, it, it will also show up outwardly as well. It will show up in our words. And so the, the NIV translates verse 14 by saying, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Not the faith we confess, but the faith we profess. And that's a, that's a fine translation. Sometimes the faith that we profess is what we say when we worship together. Today we profess our faith Uh, from Article 37 of the Belgic Confession. We spoke together about what we believe. Sometimes the faith that we profess is the things that we say to our children when we're explaining to them why our family doesn't do the things that other families do. Sometimes the faith we profess is what we speak to our co-workers or to our family members or relatives when their lives are falling apart and they wonder why we haven't gone postal although we're going through the same sort of situation that they are. Our confession shows up in our words. It also shows up in our obedience. It changes our lives. It changes our behavior. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12 tells us to lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. In other words, keep the faith. Press on. Move forward in obedience to the Lord and to his commandments. Do you trust him? Then you'll love him. If you love him, you'll keep his commandments. Hold fast to your confession and do it, because our great high priest is glorious. Secondly, our great high priest is also sympathetic. Now, the truth that we find in verse 15 is perhaps one of the warmest comforts that we find anywhere in the Bible speaks to us of the sympathy of Christ, our Savior. You know, as Reformed Christians, we can take our doctrine very seriously. Sometimes, honestly, we can take our doctrine a little too seriously. Sometimes we take our doctrine so seriously that we have a hard time thinking about doctrine in anything other than impersonal, abstract terms. And so we come to theological discussions and we talk about something that is out there, something that is external to us, and there's a lot of importance, a lot of truth to that. We believe that God uh, is sovereign. We believe in election, we believe that his powerful and and wonderful will will be accomplished no matter what we suffer, no matter what we experience, God will do what God is planning to do, and we can trust in that, and that's sometimes a little bit beyond us, and maybe somewhere along the line, somebody has even drawn that oh so helpful diagram for you of the way that the Christian life works best. You know what I'm talking about, right? It's the diagram of the train, it's a... It's uh, this old-timey locomotive with a steam engine in the front and a coal car in the middle and a caboose in the back. And the analogy says that your life will move forward with the Lord so long as you put God's facts in the driver's seat. And you fuel that by your faith in what God is doing And make sure that you put your feelings all the way at the end so that they trail along behind. Because if you switch the order, if you put your feelings first and use that as a way to interpret what God is doing, well then you're going to get it all mixed up and we won't progress in the Lord. And actually that is pretty helpful. Actually God is sovereign and actually his will will be accomplished. And actually we need to trust what God has said far more than what we feel. But wait a minute. None of that means that our feelings are unimportant or what we're experiencing doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that our our sorrows and our heartaches are just figments of our imagination that we we have to whip into shape with some stiff upper lip and a whole lot of sanctification. In fact, the things that we feel are so important to the Lord that right here in the context of declaring our great high priest, seated in the heavens, the divine Son of God, in the midst of all of this glory, the Holy Spirit causes us to stop and recognize that Jesus both knows and cares about what we're going through. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Don't get hung up on the double negative. It might be poor English, but it's very rich Greek. It's the way that the New Testament authors often add emphasis to what they're saying. It's the way that they tell us, here is something very, very true. We have a high priest who has sympathy with us. Christ, our Savior, has sympathy with his people. And that means that in this verse, the NIV has gotten it wrong. The NIV, if you have it, says that our great high priest is able to empathize with our weakness, and empathy is close to sympathy, but they're not the same. The empathy is a psychological term. Empathy talks about the skill of. Understanding other people's emotions and their feelings, even if you don't know what it is, to experience those things yourself. It's a psychological term. We can put ourselves through a a mental uh, experiment in somebody else's shoes. Sympathy, literally, coming from the Greek, sum, pathos, to feel together. It means shared experience and shared feeling. Something that we're in together and it works itself into fellowship and comfort. And that's what Christ has for his people. He has sympathy. Christ, our high priest, can sympathize with our weakness because he knows what it is to experience the same weaknesses we experience. Weakness is an explanation of the human condition in a nutshell. To be human is to be beset with weakness, not God. God has no weakness. God has no limitation. God is the ultimate actor, and we are always object, acted upon. God is the mover, and we are the moved. And often we are moved by things that we do not want to move us cold and heat and hunger and sickness and frustrated plans and rebellious children. We are moved by natural disasters and by falling stock markets and by unintended repercussions of our terrible ideas and choices. We are moved by our sin. We are moved by sin's consequences. We come up short. We give up too early. We love the things we shouldn't hold on to. We hate the things we ought to pursue. Human beings are full of weakness. And Jesus, our great high priest, knows what weakness feels like because he has felt it together with us. It's the comfort of the incarnation that we just celebrated at Christmas time. Come to earth to taste our sadness. He whose glories knew no end come to earth to taste our sadness. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Jesus came into the world and became an object. understand that? He he came into a world where he was acted upon. He was tempted by Satan and he was tested by suffering and he faced heartache and hunger and betrayal and injustice and religious abuse, just to name a few. He experienced the consequences of our sin that we deserve. He experienced being sinned against, just as you have experienced being sinned against. It doesn't mean that he has faced every single individual temptation that humanity has ever experienced in the history of the world. It means he's experienced every kind of suffering and temptation that you can experience. It means that he's faced temptation enough to test every strain of his character. He's experienced suffering enough to assault every part of his human soul. Yet the author of Hebrews says that he came out on the other side spotless. He has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Actually, that means that Jesus' temptation is different from ours in a very important way. It's different from what we experience because Jesus never knew what it was for his temptation to stop because he had simply given into it. Here we are on the second Sunday in January. <laughs> I wonder how many of us have already broken our dietary resolutions for 2022. You know that experience where you feel like your willpower can't hold on by its fingernails anymore and so you just reach for those Oreos because what's it matter? And it feels so good just to give in, doesn't it? It's a release. It's an end to the tension of resisting what you know you shouldn't have. And we do it with Oreos and we do it with our anger and we do it with our misplaced words and affections. We do it with seething bitterness and with with our lusts and the words that we say because it just feels good to spit them out. And we give in to sin because sin is easier than standing firm against it. And Jesus never knew what that was like. That means that the suffering of his temptations wasn't less than yours, but it was greater. B.F. Westcott said it Classically, he says, sympathy with the sinner does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of temptation, which only the sinless can know in its full intensity. And he who falls yields before the last strain, but our high priest never fell. Jesus, our Savior, never yielded. He never experienced that experience. He never had that weakness. He experiences our weakness not just to give you sympathy, but in order to experience that, though sinless, he did it to give you grace. Take a look back at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. Therefore he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Why? Why? to make propitiation for the sins of his people. The propitiation is an atoning sacrifice, a substitute in our place to pay the guilt that we deserve. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, our propitiation depends on Jesus' experience of temptation without sin. Our salvation was forged in the fires of a Savior who felt our human weakness and yet did not give in to the temptation. And Therefore, verse 16, we can draw near. This is the call of, of Christ's sympathy. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Of course, when the Jewish temple was still standing, people drew near by going up to Mount Zion. Up to the courts and up to the altars and up to where God met his people through the mediation of a human priest. But our Jesus has replaced all that. Now we can draw near to the Father through Jesus. We can draw near wherever we are. We can do it by turning to our Lord in prayer. Ephesians 2.18 says this way, that through him, through Jesus, we all have access to, in one spirit to the Father. That's what verse 16 is talking about. It's talking about the access to God that comes about through a sacrificial Savior. It is the fullness of the picture that we find in the day of atonement with the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat. But now the mercy seat is the throne of grace where Christ is seated at the right hand. Verse 16 is telling us about the confidence we have of coming to the Father in prayer and knowing that He hears us. We have one who intercedes for us. And if you think about it, this verse deals with most of the hang-ups that we have about approaching God in prayer. There are some people whose hang-up with prayer is that they just don't do it. Some Christians whose hang-up with prayer is that they just don't do it. And we could list all kinds of of reasons, all kinds of rationalizations and excuses for why we don't get around to the praying that we feel like and know like we we ought to do. We might say, I don't think I have enough time for prayer, or prayer is difficult, or I wouldn't know what to pray or where to start, and so we don't. But in the end, all of our rationalizations amount to what P.T. Forsyth called the worst form of practical atheism. He said that to be a Christian without prayer is like saying we believe in God, but we can do without Him. This passage calls us out of all that. If we believe that our sympathetic Savior is our priest at God's right hand, we should make use of the access He offers to us. And verse 16 is an invitation as much as it is a command. Let us draw near. Come close to the Lord. Pour out your heart to him make known your request to him share the thoughts and the feelings and the struggles of your soul with him come to find grace and mercy tell him when you're in need because he's the one who can help you and by the way through Jesus he listens to you you have access to the father and so this passage calls us if our hang up with prayer is simply not praying come and pray come to the father through Jesus And again, there is another category of hang-ups. There are those who do pray, but they pray presumptively. This is less prevalent, but it's there. There are Christians who pray and never have a thought for their unworthiness to come before the God of heaven. They repent because the Bible tells them they should, but they don't actually know what it is to labor and to weep and to struggle with the reality of their sin and repentance. There are people who pray like the Pharisee in the temple who pray feeling that of course God will hear me because God hears all people who have their lives pretty well put together. And I'm one of those people, right? And aren't you? And and can't we go to the Lord? And of course he will listen to us. But this text reminds us what it costs to draw near to God's throne of grace. What does our access to the Father cost? Nothing we can give. And nothing we have. It costs the condescending love of God the Son in the person of Jesus Christ. It costs the maker of the universe to take on the weakness of our flesh and the burden of our sin. And it should be a sobering thought. It should be a thought strong enough to shake our self-confidence and make us more humble when we approach the Lord. And then again, there is a third category of hang-ups. And this one, I think, is probably one that's much more persistent in the presumptive prayers that we pray. Because there are people, there are believers, who pray to the Lord, but they always pray timidly. Almost the opposite of the presumptive prayer. These are the people who pray with both eyes open because they're always looking at, they're always fixated on their own unworthiness. Their own sin and their own failures and their own shortcomings. It's all that they can see when they turn to the Lord. They come like that, uh, that tax collector in the temple, beating his breast, unable to look to heaven, unable to come to the Father and think, that would he even welcome me if I came? These are the people that hear God's call to Christ and assume that it must be for somebody else. It must be for somebody better than them, somebody holier than them. These are the Christians who pray with faith enough, but they pray with no real assurance that Christ is willing to hear them. And to those Christians, this passage says, come closer. Don't be afraid. No longer doubt that your heavenly Father is willing to receive you. Hebrews tells us that we have a great high priest who bids us to come, and to come with confidence. He tells us that we should expect to find something at God's throne when we draw near. That means that verse 16 is a promise, isn't it? When we come close to the throne of God's grace, to Christ our high priest, what should we expect to find? We should expect to find Mercy. That is forgiveness for all those sins and shortcomings, all the unworthiness that we have in our past, everything that we bring with us to God's throne of grace that makes us feel like uh, unworthy are we. Woe are we, people of unclean lips. When we come close to God's throne, we find mercy and forgiveness. Through him, we also find grace to help the needs that we're going to encounter in the future. How can you know that you won't turn out like some of the people that this letter was being written about and written to, who seemed to be going along pretty well so far, and then something else came and it diverted them into a bypath and into another way, and, and they slowly but surely left the path of following Christ? How can you know that you will turn out like, like that? You can know that when you come to the Lord, you'll find grace to help. In your hour of need, what's your greatest need? Your greatest need is to keep the faith. To follow the Lord, not to give up, but to press forward, to press on in faithfulness to the Lord. And you can find help through Christ. Because of Jesus, we can be confident that all God requires of us, He will supply through the Savior He sent. You don't have to ignore your weaknesses, and you don't have to pretend that you don't face temptation, and you don't have to convince yourself that someday you'll get your life together enough that you can come on your own reputation. It doesn't work that way. Christ is the only high priest who's able to make his people faithful. He's the only one who can bridge the gap that you could never cross on your own. And in him, we can be confident that God's grace is for us too. Let's pray together. Gracious and glorious Lord, we thank you for our sympathetic high priest, the one who is God and man in one person, who has given us himself to draw us near to you. Thank you, O Lord, for the access we have, and the life and forgiveness in his name. We pray that you would cause us to trust in you. To look to you that our faces may be radiant, that our souls may be filled, that our lives may be gathered to you, and all the good works that you demand of us shall be produced by abiding in Christ. Make it true, O Lord. Join us to him in faith, we pray. In Jesus' name.